James Capella interconnects millions of assured data points across Jane's foundational intelligence with the ability to integrate and contextualize multiple sources, delivering the single source of truth. James Capella increases certainty and accelerates decision-making for everyone in your organization. Find out more at james.com forward slash capella. Welcome to the World of Intelligence, a podcast for you to discover the latest analysis of global military and security trends within the open source defense intelligence community. Now on to the episode with your host, Harry Kemsley. Hello, good morning. Harry Kemsley. I'm the president of the National Security and Government segment of Jane's. I'm delighted to have not one guest today, but actually two guests. So Sean, Sean Corbett's with me again. For those of you who have heard the podcast before, you'll know Sean's voice. But I've also got a new guest, Rick Keir, a new member of our team, helping us from Australia, who will introduce himself in just a second. So Sean, a few words for yourself to remind the audience who you are. Yeah, thanks, Harry. Good to see you again. Yeah, Sean Corbett, uh, ex-retired senior RF officer, intelligence officer and the co-chair of the Strategic Advisory Group for James. Thanks, Sean. And Rick Keir, welcome to the team. A few words from yourself. No, thanks, Harry. I'm uh, Rick Keir. I'm also a retired Air Force intelligence officer, this time from the Royal Australian Air Force. And uh, my last appointment um, in the permanent Air Force here in Australia was as the J2 or Director General Intelligence at Headquarters Joint Operations Command between uh, December 15, December 18, responsible for uh, intelligence support to global ADF operations. And I now provide strategic advisory services to the national security intelligence and defence communities and industry engaging or wanting to engage with those communities. And uh, I've been with James as a strategic advisor since May of this year. Yeah, fantastic. Fantastic. Thank you again, Sean, for joining us. So, gents, what I thought we would do today, given where you are based, Rick, and with your experience uh, in that region, is we're going to have a look at the Asia-Pacific region. Um, All of us are aware of the many events that are ongoing around the South China Sea, for example. Um, Some might know that the Royal Navy is sailing its carrier group um, somewhat strategically through um, that part of the world, as well as other parts of the world, on its global tour. It's interesting to me for a variety of reasons. We have a lot of customers in the Asia-Pacific region, not least in Australia, Japan, South Korea, for example, but many other places as well. Um, But it's also a region that is of increased interest given the rise of China in its uh, potency, both economically as well as a military force, which will be our focus here today. So it's a region of great interest and and I think rising interest for the world as we are facing the future and the challenges that are coming. So what I thought I might do first, Rick, and I'm going to come to you first, is just ask you to give us an overview of what you think are the big drivers. What are the big priorities uh, in terms of the region of the Asia Pacific um, that will be capturing the minds of uh, ex-colleagues in Australia, in the Five Eyes community and other parts of the world, not least the ASEAN countries as well? What are the big challenges? What are the big priorities for national security in the region of Asia Pacific? And then from there, I think what we'll do is we'll, we'll find one or two that we'll perhaps dig into a bit further. But Rick, if you can give us that overview first, that'd be really great. Thank you. Yeah, no worries, Harry. Look, uh, I noticed your comment on the the Asia-Pacific, and I guess as an Australian, I, I prefer the term Indo-Pacific uh, okay. to the Asia-Pacific, and, and that's because Australia, you know, sits between the Pacific Oceans and the Indian Oceans. That, that might sound a little pedantic, I guess, but in more recent years, uh, the term Indo-Pacific has probably been increasingly much more increasingly used here in Australia. And 
And uh, many of the listeners, I guess, would also note that US Pacific Command changed its name only a few years ago yeah, to the Indo, Indo Pacific Indo Pacific Command. So um, I think it's it's also a way of making sure that uh, India and the subcontinent uh, writ large is really factored into the equation much more so than the term Asia Pacific. So I guess on the, on that point, I'll uh, kind of crack on with a few other points that I've um, I've thought about. First, some key statistics. The, the Indo-Pacific's more than half the world's population and a third of the world's economic output. Um, it's never been more significant to global security than it is at present, and this will likely continue for the remainder of the century. And uh, as you've already pointed out, no discussion on the Indo-Pacific could be remotely complete without starting with the impact of the rise of China. So I thought I'd spend a few minutes just talking about the rise of China and its impact uh, on the Indo-Pacific. Yeah, thanks, Rick. Uh, I think um, a notable, notable anniversary occurred uh, this month. The Communist Party of China celebrated its 100th anniversary since it was founded in Shanghai in 1921, and it's ruled China since 1949 now, or 72 years. And I think the, the longevity of that's significant because you might recall that the Communist Party ruled Russia or the Soviet Union for 72 years, sorry, 74 years. Um, mm -hmm. And that probably gives some idea that this communist regime staying power is, is quite significant. Um, it's going nowhere for quite some time. Uh, China's rise to great power status has been inevitable in many ways, but it still appears to be a bit of a shock to a lot of people. And I think that's because of the recent rate of increase in the last decade or so, particularly the last five years. Um, but it's not just about uh, the development of its increased national power. It's also about the increased assertiveness in its use of that power. And uh, it's become increasingly apparent that China doesn't want to play by the West's rules and it wants to actually fundamentally reshape the rules. Um, the main driver of this new level of power has, of course, China's military transformation, and that's a, a key subject of interest for James. And specifically through its anti-access area denial or A2AD strategy, it's developed the means to not only defend its homeland, its primary requirement, but exert significant power beyond. And while China has started to change its military strategy to extend from the near seas out to the first island chain to also encompass the far seas or beyond the second island chain, A2AD remains the strategy's bedrock and the way it basically intends to keep the US away from China uh, if there was to be a conflict um, such as a future invasion of Taiwan if that would have occurred. Now, China's power has direct impacts on three key potential flashpoints in East Asia. The South China Sea, which is increasingly well known about uh, around, the, around the world. The East China Sea, perhaps less known. And of course, Taiwan. Um, China's militarisation of the South China Sea's Paracel and Spratly Islands has really started since the 1970s. And specifically, the establishment of seven island fortresses and airfields in the Spratlys is a significant matter for this body of water, which is often called the fulcrum of Asia. And a quick look at the map will elucidate the key strategic location of the South China Sea in relation to the trade routes that extend from the Middle East and Europe all the way through to Eastern North Asia. And nearly um, one third of the global maritime trade passes through this area. While impacted by China's militarization of the South China Sea, because it, it receives and sends good and product, goods and products through the South China Sea. Um, Japan's real issues are much closer to home in the East China Sea, and specifically the Senkaku Islands, or what China calls the Diaoyu Islands. And these lie between Taiwan and Japan. Okinawa, a very significant uh, US military presence there, is very close by. 
And the Nyako Strait in the Senkakus is one of only two ways that the Chinese Navy can actually access the, the broader Pacific Ocean, the other being the Luzon Strait to Taiwan South between the Taiwan and the Philippines. Um, and, uh, you know, strategy drives, uh, sorry, geography drives strategy, as you know. Yeah. So um, Taiwan's very different to the South China Sea and East China Seas, simply because not many people live on the islands in the South China Sea and the East China Sea, but 25 million odd Taiwanese live in Taiwan. So it's a very different set of problems um, for China and the world. Um, now, many analysts increasingly believe that it's not a matter of if China will invade Taiwan, but actually when it will invade China, Taiwan. And yeah. There's a lot of debate about this, but I assess it clearly won't be tomorrow, but it could be in the next five to 10 years. Um, China is big on anniversaries. I talked about the CCP's anniversary. Um, the PLA's anniversary, the People Liberation's Army um, anniversary, is uh, its 100th anniversary is actually in 2027. So it sits astride that that five to 10 year timeline. And um, as we know, anniversaries do have real meaning in China. Yeah. So Taiwan's of significance important to Australia. And it's not because there are alliances, there are none. It's not because of recognition, there isn't official recognition. But um, they're both islands, they're both about 25 million people, they're both democratic, they both have free media, they both have and um, uh, fairly robust populations, and, and they're both economic success stories. So. Um, the, the relationships aren't formally there, but of course the identifications are. And uh, Taiwan's a country that is increasingly a key part of the world's economy. Uh, for example, Taiwan accounts for well over 50% of the world's production capacity of semiconductors. Mm -hmm. So it is quite the powerhouse in some, in some niche areas. So I talked about East Asia, but it's not all about East Asia. Um, in June 2020, the Galwan River Valley skirmishes, skirmishes between um, uh, India and China occur, and, and you know those those skirmishes, occasional wars have occurred for for many decades now. So, it's probably not surprising that uh, that an organisation called the Quad has has occurred, has eventuated, and the Quad comprises the US, India, Japan, and Australia. Started in about 2007, had a bit of a rocky road, but since 2019, it's really hit its straps and it is, it is quite a serious forum in many ways. And of course, China doesn't like it because when you look at the geography of those four countries, it's pretty much north, south, and uh, and east. Um, just close to wrapping up, in but I wanted to make a point about Australia's specific. Um, perceptions of China and, and the issues going on between Australia and China, which I know of, uh, have certainly been fairly highlighted in, in the media around the world. So in late 2020, the Australian government released a defence strategic update. It's not unusual. But the Prime Minister, um, Prime Minister Morrison, noted at the time when it was released that the level of strategic uncertainty that we face now has not been greater than since the 1930s and 40s. And that's pretty sobering, really, that that, that is an official uh, yeah. set of statements. And um, that statement was made in the context of not only China's military transformation and the potential hash points that we uh, are not that far away, really, but also in the context of Australia being under significant political and economic pressure from China, with significant bans imposed on minerals, food, wine, etc. Um, some of those have had significant impacts, others uh, not so much. But in November 2020, around about the time of the Defence Strategic Update, um, 
the Chinese Embassy here in Australia actually released a, a document, a 14-point list of complaints, and released it to the media. And uh, some have called it a charge sheet against Australia, but it's it's very interesting reading um, because it complains about Australia's foreign interference laws and the decision to ban the Chinese state-owned entities like Huawei and ZT, ZTE and Australia's 5G network, uh, Australia calling for a inquiry, an independent inquiry into the origins of COVID, etc. So needless to say, if Australia acceded to any of these demands, then its sovereignty would be somewhat questionable. And uh, I'll just finish up by saying that uh, with the G7 recently in the UK and Cornwall, um, China was a significant issue of discussion amongst the G7 and the invited guests. And um, I did note at the time that uh, it was probably no accident that the Quad was there as a part of the G7. Obviously, Japan and the US are G7 members, but India and Australia were invited guests. And uh, actually, Prime Minister Morrison did brief the G7 on the 14-point letter and talked about Australia's challenges as they currently are with China. So we could talk um, for a lot more about, about these kind of issues. Um, so I'll, I'll pause it there and um, hand over to uh, Sean. That's fascinating, Rick. And, and I do think, you know, up front, it's really important to get a reasonable perspective. You know, I guess we're all guilty of, of seeing things through, through the lens of our own nations, you know, uh, and particularly in the UK with our sort of Western small island view. So getting that reasonable perspective, I think, is really important. I, th I think for me, looking at China, which is the big conundrum, you know, I ask myself what their motive is. You know, absolutely, completely agree with the historical entitlement. You know, if you go back way back, they used to be a global power, you know, many, many years ago. Um, but how much of what they're doing now is is due to if you like, political philosophy or how much of it is sheer pragmatism. And I also, as I say, when I when I look at any nation, I'll look at, I'll put them in the global map right in the centre. And you do get a very different perspective. If you look at China, for example, you know, it's, it's bounded by 14 countries of which many of them have got, you know, significant internal issues, you know, Pakistan, India, Russia, North Korea, Afghanistan, you know, Vietnam, you name it. So, and they've got a huge population over a massive expanse. And, and while, you know, that the sort of the, the Han ethnicity is, is by far dominant, I do wonder sometimes whether, you know, their, their expansionist approach is part of their, you know, unwritten deal with the population. As long as we keep on increasing our economic might and power and make your, you know, your, your cost of living or your, your, your lifestyles better, then you will be compliant. And I always wonder whether that is what is what drives them. I guess to an extent that's irrelevant because they are certainly now a global player. Um, and, and if you look at their grand strategy, for me, I, th I think is, you know, it's really clever at the end of the day. It, it's the, you know, the, the Belt and Road Initiative that we've all heard of before. It's using the, the, the might of the econ economic power and for power projection. And you just need to look at the port facilities. I was doing a bit of research yesterday, actually. And, you know, they are definitely expanding their port presence. So you've got, uh, I'm probably apprenticing this, Hambantota in, uh, in Sri Lanka. Um, you've obviously got Pakistan, um, Guada or Guada. And, and actually, uh, up until 2019, they even owned Long Beach in California. Now, that's pretty clever stuff because it's all legal. And, they, and if they've got the economy to do it, why wouldn't they? Um, so... When you've got a nation like that, which, and again, looking at its approach to warfare, which is very much a hybrid approach, you know, any autocratic nation, and this is what, you know, the, the US and her allies, and, and we're up against, 
is far better at um, using all the levers of, of its power, uh, government power, to achieve its ends than we are in a liberal democracy going to do that. So, you know, it becomes a really difficult uh, problem, not just from a military perspective, and we'll probably come and talk about some of the, uh, you know, enhancements to their military, but also from a grand strategic you know, global approach to, to that country. Um, I'll probably leave it there, otherwise I'll go on forever. Sure, thanks. I um, I really enjoyed the introduction, Rick. There were lots of things in there which you brought to my mind, which, to be honest, I either have never thought about, like East China Sea, not something I've really ever considered as a factor, but uh, to your point, Sean, centering the map on the country of interest always gives you a different perspective. Um, but equally, your points about the 14-point uh, the list and sovereignty for Australia, you know, fascinating dynamic there for sure. Um, but what I'm going to do now, at the risk of sounding like I'm trying to be very UK centric, because um, it is a matter of great interest to certainly my nation and our Navy, is uh, just focus in a bit more on the A2AD capabilities of China, because we've got a carrier group that's about to uh, move through uh, an area that's very dear to um, China. So without necessarily referring the A2AD specifically to the carrier group, because that's not what I'm trying to do here. I am much more interested in that uh, that part of what you said, Rick, in terms of what is it that China has been doing in terms of anti-access and error denial? Because if that's about defence in depth by pushing the adversary further and further away and denying them access to protect their own shores, that's one thing. But if it's really about giving themselves the operating space to do things with impunity, brackets Taiwan, and perhaps we'll go on to Taiwan later, that's a slightly different thing. And there's um, certainly similarities here between what I'm hearing around China's A2AD and what the UK is perceiving uh, in Western Europe with A2AD capabilities of Russia, another uh, point we can come back to perhaps on another day. So let's zero in a little bit further now on a couple of those things. There are a lot of things I would like to spend some more time on, Rick, but let's do just one or two to give them justice. Let's talk about the um, the A2AD. How, how much further can, get, can we go in a few minutes on A2AD? Yeah, sure, Harry. Um, happy to talk about A2AD. Um, as noted uh, earlier, much of China's military modernisation is focused on capabilities to increase its ability to execute military operations without foreign interference. And it's mostly concerned about US foreign interference in any particular in, potential conflict against Taiwan. But the same would equally apply with the East China Sea and the, and the South China Sea. And there's some pretty good historical reasons why China is pretty concerned about uh, foreign interference. Um, and the way in which it uh, plans on defending itself and giving itself freedom of manoeuvre. So these counter-intervention -inter capabilities um, are really aimed to prevent adversary forces from entering an area operations, um, known as anti-access or A2, and then if they do enter, then to limit their freedom of manoeuvre of the force, and that's known as area denial or AD. So that's where A2AD comes from. Sure. Uh, it's often talked about, but probably not so well understood in that way. And China's A2AD capabilities have, have therefore become the principal focus of the US and, and its allied militaries in the Western Pacific. Now, how did it come about? Well, China's always had a coastal defence force in many respects, um, but it really came about at the end of the Cold War in 1989. Uh, the US finished up as the global superpower, but soon thereafter in 1991, the, the US uh, was the, the lead nation uh, when Iraq um, invaded Kuwait and, and led the military operations to uh, remove Iraq from Kuwait, etc. And the US easily defeated the Iraq military, which was very large at the time. And, uh, and uh, I remember there was much talk about this when I was a very junior flying officer. Um, 
about how big and how good the Iraq military was. Well, the US easily defeated Iraq, and it struck the Chinese that uh, they had a great deal of similarities with the Iraq military. They operated very similar equipment, Russian-based, had very similar tactics as a result of Russian advisors, and uh, this caught them um, somewhat by surprise at how easy the US was able to do this. And uh, again, that followed with the air war over Serbia as well in, in 97, again, the way of, of US warfare in terms of decapitation and strike, etc. Um, so the, in the meantime, the, it, it was going to take a long time for China to catch up. So in the meantime, they focused on the defence first. Now, China has determined that any war in the Western Pacific um, not unreasonably, they've, they've uh, understood that the US is going to have to travel a long way over the Pacific. The Pacific Ocean is massive and, and no, no map or chart truly gives that the true impression of how vast it is. Um, but even with forward deployed capabilities um, in Japan, South Korea, Okinawa, etc., uh, a vast amount of capability is going to have to move across the Pacific Ocean from from the west coast of the US or Hawaii. Um, or China, it's all in China's backyard. Taiwan yeah. is incredibly close. Close The East China Sea is incredibly close. South China Sea is incredibly close. But again, it's very constrained in that the only way in which China can expand outwards to the Pacific Ocean, particularly the Philippine Sea, is through the Miyako Straits and the Luzon Straits, north and south of Taiwan. So there's a, there's a lot of method here. And uh, so China has developed a lot of ballistic and cruise missile capability, the first real anti-ship ballistic missile capabilities um, to keep US carrier strike groups, the main way of US maritime warfare, uh, away from um, the Chinese coast, the Chinese homeland, and also a very significant integrated air and missile defense capability, um, fundamentally to defend the center of gravity of China, which is the CCP. So, uh, and the CCP leadership. So it's all built around that. And with that goes a huge amount of hardening, dispersal, camouflage, concealment, etc. Now, as China modernizes its military and prepares for various contingencies, it continues to develop capabilities that are going to be, that are designed to dissuade, deter or defeat US intervention in any invasion of Taiwan. As you mentioned, we'll talk about Taiwan next there's no guarantee of US intervention, but there's probably a good number of reasons as to why that would be likely. And I'd also want to just mention that there's another term that's often used, informationization, which is directly linked with the, with the transformation of the PLA. And that's effectively an asymmetric response and ability to increase their ability to weaken an adversary's uh, ability to acquire, transmit, process and use information. And uh, this directly relates to, to their use of the electromagnetic spectrum in electronic warfare and also cyberspace. So China's therefore developed really highly capable A2AD forces, which are fundamentally designed to keep the US away from the homeland and give it freedom of manoeuvre in any future operation against Taiwan. Yeah, and as you describe that set of capabilities, you get the real sense of the conundrum, Sean, I'll come to you on this point, um, that that presents for the US because to try and overcome the A2AD, to, to restrict the ability for the Chinese to, for example, uh, exert influence, military influence over Taiwan, means they've got to put themselves in a very difficult place. And with the amount of capability that's going to get thrown at them, that's a significant undertaking. And of course, as I think you and I've discussed before, if the US do get involved and get a bloody nose, that's very bad for long-term um, 
strategy for the US, but it's also very bad for the reputation and the confidence other nations have in the big brother of the US looking after them. Flip that over, if they don't get involved because they perceive the threat to be too great, that has the same outcome. So it's a, a really big conundrum for the US, I suspect, a lot of time being thought and spent on that to try and understand how to deal with it. So Sean, your thoughts on the A2AD piece and how that affects the US strategy for that part of the world? Yeah, uh, it, it is a difficult problem, sir, as you both laid out, actually. And I know I know senior military um, uh, think tanks in the in the US are really trying to work it all out. I mean, it's a huge space for a start, and that's not, not always recognised. Um, you just need to look at the, the, the presidential um, budget requests for 2021 to see that you know there is definitely a move towards uh, greater reach range more agility communications uh, and actually dealing more with allies and partners uh, and that reads back to what you're saying rick about you know it's now the indo-pacom to recognize that all the nations there matter they're all you know needed to be allies and partners um uh, you know and it's not just about the south china sea um but but in terms of you know what you do about it you know there are those that are nervous that you know is, is there an inevitability about it um, and and is it going to is something going to be triggered by you know miscalculation um, I don't know I mean obviously you've got the, the UK carrier group growing but also increasing increasing freedom of navigation operations around there just to test and of course there's going to be some intelligence collection going on as well so it's a little bit cat and mouse. You know, I I do worry like you do, Rick, about the, the Taiwan issue because that's separate. You know, there's this global and regional hegemony, but there's also then an, a specific issue. And, you know, you can almost equate that, if you like, to to Russia and the Crimea, vice the rest of the Ukraine. Uh, it's, it's not a very exact um, analogy, but but, you know, the, the, there is that that deep worry. Um, we could talk about, you know, why it'd be difficult, but we can, you know, as a, as as you were saying before, the, the US need to counter that A2AD, um, which is pretty layered and pretty good, but they recognise that. Um, what that results in terms of equipment, I don't know, but I know they're focusing very heavily, as I said before, on, on increased range, on increased agility and in joined up communications. Yeah, I'd like to spend a bit more time um, on another session actually about this informationization uh, concept that you raised, Rick. It sounds uh, like it's a piece of that hybrid warfare you were alluding to in your piece a, a few minutes ago, Sean, but I'd like to spend more time today, given we're running a bit short on time, to move on to the other issue which I highlighted from your initial notes, um, Rick, Taiwan. Um, I've already said that I think Taiwan presents for the US a significant conundrum, a real military challenge, both in terms of can we get involved if we do, do we get a bloody nose or do we decide not to get involved and then we get a bloody nose but by the means? Um, let's spend a bit more time with the last minutes we've got talking about uh, Taiwan, Rick. Yeah, no worries, Harry. Um, I think uh, a, a lot of what I really would say about Taiwan is, and what I've already mentioned about Taiwan, probably also is in the basket of thinking about the unthinkable. And um, there is, there is, you know, if if warfare does happen in terms of an invasion against Taiwan, then uh, there will be nothing uh, elegant or quick about it, and uh, it really won't be anything like we have seen since, uh, you know, the the massive um, battles of 1942, and the 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 mopping up campaigns of of 43, 4, and 5. Um, but in the the reality is that you know, not thinking about something 
isn't going to isn't going to stop it from happening. So you know we are best to think about these things, and really come up with uh, the best uh, solutions that we can to very intractable problems. But about Taiwan, you know, it's easily the longest running issue of the three East Asian flash flashpoints. It predates the Korean War of fifty fifty three even. Um, so it is the classic post war um, issue within Asia. Um, so in 49, as, as, as uh, you, you'll probably be aware, um, the Kuomintang or the nationalists uh, evacuated mainland China under uh, Chiang Kai-shek when they lost the civil war to Mao Zedong. And the civil war basically continued directly and, and by proxy, but the nationalist government uh, moved into Taiwan and established um, their government there. So this situation has now been going for 72 years. Um, Taiwan, in many respects, has moved on and become an incredibly successful country. Um, in generational terms, there are many Taiwanese, Taiwanese now who have absolutely no thought of ever being a part of China. Um, but in terms of the CCP's view of what China is, um, clearly uh, it sees Taiwan as a part of China, in fact, a, a key part of it, and that China will actually only be whole again when Taiwan is back in the fold. So two very divergent views of, of, of Taiwan's place in the world. Chinese, so past Chinese defence white papers have clearly stated that the most important role for the PLA is to retake Taiwan for the Chinese Communist Party. And it's, I think at this point, it's really important to say that the PLA is not the defence force of China. It is the defence force of the Chinese Communist Party. So it is a very different way of thinking about these matters. And when the Chinese Communist Party has made, as as uh, Sean said, a pretty big promise to the people of China about ta the future of Taiwan, uh, that it all becomes uh, intractably related. Now, Taiwan and the US, they have a very historic and, and strategically close relationship. And up until the US's recognition of, of Beijing as the, as the, the true uh, China, I guess. Um, in the early 70s, they did have a mutual defence treaty with the recognition of China, that mutual defence treaty ended. However, US Congress enacted a, a, a artefact called the Taiwan Relations Act, or the, the TRA. And um, the TRA actually requires the US to resist anything that would jeopardise Taiwan security. So it's actually almost a one-sided treaty by another name. And uh, again, this is probably not that well known uh, in, in uh, wide circles, but it does drive US policy in many respects. And since 49, there's been a lot of crisis, uh, crises between um, Taiwan and uh, China and the US. Uh, offshore bombardments of the islands of Kuimo and Matsu for years, um, et cetera, et cetera. Right now, massive levels of incursions, which uh, by PLA aircraft into Taiwanese airspace, effectively to um, almost in an attempt to exhaust um, the Taiwanese Air Force. Uh, these are continuing. But back in 95, 96, when uh, pro-independence voices in Taiwan were getting quite loud, uh, China responded by conducting a number of missile tests to the north and south of Taiwan to express its, its displeasure. The US under then President Clinton dispatched two carrier battle groups to the Straits of Taiwan to make it very clear the US's stance on this. Um, it made it very clear what the US's stance was, but it also served to hasten China's A2AD developments. Mm -hmm. um, 
and uh, it really was quite a slap in the face for China that they really were not able to do much about those two carrier bail groups. Uh, what the US will do in the next crisis will be a key test of its credibility, there is no doubt, as a superpower and also as a treaty ally for Japan, South Korea and the Philippines and Australia. In fact, outside of, um, outside of NATO and uh, the Rio Treaty in, in South America, all of its alliances are in the Indo-Pacific. It is here that any conflict between the US and China uh, would see China rely heavily on its A2AD forces and the US on its counter A2AD forces to thwart each other's objective, either the invasion of Taiwan or the defence of Taiwan. And this would very much be a maritime war and a missile war. If a conflict were to occur, which in my view is, is probably more likely than not, but not tomorrow uh, and not the next year, but still probably more likely than not, uh, it will be extremely difficult for the US-China conflict over Taiwan to be contained and only limited to Taiwan. Um, you only need to look at the way in which the East China Sea and the South China Sea pretty much extend um, China's um, uh, influence uh, into the East, the Western Pacific and also offer the only ways to, to get out into the Philippine Sea. So this won't be a containable, containable event and it could well end up being at a scale not seen since 41-42. So um, Taiwan therefore easily remains, the, in my view, the most dangerous potential flashpoint in the Western Pacific and certainly one to watch the closest. Um, although the South China Sea gets a lot of uh, media time, a lot of air time because of the seven airfields and, and uh, fortresses, uh, it's Taiwan that really has the potential to actually create cataclysmic little events in my view. Yeah, thanks, Rick. Let me just pick up on that point, um, Sean, with you in terms of this ability for it to draw in other nations. Um, you know, the UK is putting its, its carrier battle group through there right now. That's a statement of intent, perhaps. It's a long, long way from the UK. It's a very long way from the US as well. Um, let's just spend a few moments before we close uh, looking at how this vortex starts to spin around Taiwan and how it starts to draw in other nations in that region, but also outside. What are your thoughts on that cataclysmic event that Rick has talked about and, and how that might spread and a ripple across other nations? Yeah, it, it is a really worrying issue. Um, and, and I think what we're seeing now already is, is, a, is an attempt to counter it by, if you want to call it defence diplomacy, you know, it's no accident, obviously, that the UK carrier battle groups going through. The US is increasingly just testing and probing. And of course, you know, you, you can't do all that without at least, um, you know, a, a, a non non um, interventionist type approach from from your neighbours and and, um, and and partners out there. So what the US is doing certainly um, is trying to catalyze the existing treaties and um, and you know alliances out there which are imperfect as we know to try and get the, the the local nations to actually you know talk to each other more about more and they've all got their own you know individual conflicts with um, borders disputes and fishing and all the rest of it but it's only by bringing them together you know, in some sort of coherent whole um, that that you can get that defence diplomacy working properly. So, I mean, it's, it's rather a rambling answer on that, but, you know, that just shows the difficulty of the actual problem set itself. Um, but I think we're going to increasingly, just, just to finish, we're going to increasingly see more, you know, just testing up against the boundaries to try and make it more normal 
as opposed to a single flashpoint where, you know, our carrier battle group or another one just goes in and, and goes over that line and, and gets a big reaction. So by yeah. normalizing th that sort of activity, I guess the uh, the strategy is to is to sort of reduce the chances of miscalculation. But I agree with Rick, you know, that that this is the most worrying element of the whole um, region. Yeah, I'd certainly like to look into that uh, point you just made there, Sean, about the need for local nations to work in more clear, demonstrable union um, in the face of the rising threat. There are lots of national issues at play for each of those countries from different perspectives. Bringing them together as a coalition will have huge challenges, not just for culture and language and all the obvious things, but also in terms of their own national interests and uh, their own particular objectives. But I have to be clear now that we're running very short on time. So let me just draw stumps by summarising a few points that you've made, Rick, in terms of the regional dynamics. And you've certainly brought to my mind a couple of things that I hadn't really thought about, as I said earlier. So the East China Sea, the pivotal na nature of Taiwan and the access that China needs around that island and so on. But equally, the need for us to recognise that there are real flashpoint potential here over the next period of years. I also note the anniversary, which you highlighted with PLA, you know, that has a real sense of history and no doubt nostalgia for the PLA in terms of what they might want to do as a demonstration on the 100th year. So, yeah, there's a real opportunity there, I'm sure, for them to use that as a building um, moment for them, a milestone in their own history. Um, I would like to come back to a couple of issues that we've talked about today in another time. But if I leave the audience with anything, I think it's going to be for a Jane's advocate, I want to look at the capabilities for the A2AD that China now represent and the counter A2AD that's going to be required, if not already in place, from the US and allies. I also noted the budget, Sean, that um, the president's brought forward in terms of what that does for potential counter AD, AT, A2AD. Um, I am also quite interested in this information, informationization, couldn't say it the first time, struggle with the second. Um, that That's an interesting concept to me because it plays to something that I'm very interested in, which is warfare by other means and the cyber domain and misinformation and all those things that uh, we all struggle with, I'm sure is a big part of this particular uh, this particular scenario in this region. But let me finish by saying a very, very sincere thank you, Sean, for your uh, attendance and continued patience in joining these sessions. But a particular thanks to you, Rick, for your, uh, for your expertise, the preparation and participation in this event. Um, I look forward to the next time, and if you can bear with it, I'll uh, invite you back for a bit more on some of those things we talked about today. Thank you, Rick, and thank you, thank Sean. Thank you. Pleasure. Thanks for joining us this week on The World of Intelligence. Make sure to visit our website, janes.com slash podcast, where you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, so you'll never miss an episode.